Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to 30. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, New Hope. It is uh, really great to be with you today. Um, if you're visiting with us, it's really great to have you. It's really great for you to, to, to have you with us. We're excited that you're visiting with us. It is obviously an important day for us. We are, uh, com- get to commission our friend, Jen. We get to say farewell to her, which is um, uh, difficult and yet at the same time um, more exciting uh, than really even we can imagine. More exciting than we can imagine. We get to participate with you, Jen, in the work that God is going to do in you and through you as you leave for Namibia. Um, later on, at, at, at a little later this afternoon, we're going to be, as a church, getting the chance to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We get to come here and take this bread and take this cup. And, and for Jen, this is going to be the, the, the last time in a, in a while, at least, that you'll be taking communion together with us as a body. Um, we're, in fact, going to be talking about the Lord's Supper today. And you might be asking, why? Why are we talking about the Lord's Supper Today. Well, there are a few different reasons why, but, but here's one. Um, have you ever been in a, some sort of ceremony or ritual and you felt totally lost in the middle of it? Have you ever been in a situation like that? I, I mean, you're there in some kind of gathering, um, and, and, and may, it's sort of new to you. And, and so you don't want to stick out, so you just try to follow along and do what everything, everyone else is doing, but you're not really sure why you're doing it. Maybe it's the first time someone ever invited you to church. You've never been in a Christian service before. Or maybe, maybe, I can relate to this one, the the first time you were ever invited to a friend's bar mitzvah in middle school, and you're not Jewish. And you're just kind of trying to figure out, like, what does all this mean? What is he saying? What are we saying? What, What is all this? You try to follow along. You try not to draw too much attention to yourself. And you just try to do what everyone else is doing. You just don't know why. I've had several experiences like that over the years. Um, One that I can remember was um, several years back, I was working at the time in Korea, and, um, and, and a guy that I worked with there invited me to visit his church on Sunday. Um, at the time, I, I would not have identified as a Christian. I was not eager to go to church, but I wanted to be polite to this guy. He was very nice. At least, he seemed nice. I just met him. I just started this new job. And I wanted to be culturally sensitive, so I go to church on Sunday. It's a Korean church, obviously. 
And, but when I get there, I'm looking around for this colleague, and he's nowhere to be found. I can't see him. So I take a seat in a pew, and um, as the service goes on, um, many things happen that make no sense to me at all. I'm surrounded by people who were, at points they were singing, and then they would not sing. They would stand up, and then they would sit down. They would pray out loud. At one point, I just know we were all holding hands. I'm not sure why. And then, and then someone, several people came up to the front, said some things that were, seemed very interesting to some people, seemed very boring to other people. They were asleep. I didn't know what was going on. All I know is I was hoping that no one would ask me to introduce myself to, like, to the congregation. You know? I was hoping that they wouldn't call me up and say, who are you, and tell us about yourself. And thankfully, no, they didn't do that. And, and if you're visiting today, we're not going to do that to you either. So you're welcome for that. As soon as the service was over and everyone started shaking hands and hugging, I made a straight line for the door. And I went back to my apartment. And the next day, I was at work, Monday morning, and I run into my colleague who had invited me to church. And, and I was like, hey, I was at your church yesterday. I didn't see you there. And he said, he goes, Robert, I, I don't go to church very often. He said to me, which I just didn't understand why he would invite me to a church that he doesn't really go to very often. <laughs> Apparently, he wanted me to be there. I don't know why. In any case, in any case, my point's this. In order for any kind of ceremony to really have meaning for us, we need to understand it, at least have a basic understanding of it. You need to understand what's going on and, and why. And that's just one of the reasons that I would want, I want us to talk about the Lord's Supper today. And in fact, we're going to be talking about it again next Sunday, because I think that it's possible for some of us to participate in this ordinance, but not really get it. Or, or maybe it's possible for us to have, for this ordinance to have gotten so familiar to us that it's lost some significance for us. It's become kind of rote. It's become a formality. We do it, but we've kind of lost sight of why. Sometimes there's confusion surrounding the Lord's Supper. What's it really for? What, what should we even call it? Some call it the Lord's Supper. Some call it the Lord's Table. Some call it Communion, the Eucharist. Why so many names in the first place? That in alone is, is confusing. What I hope to do today and next Sunday is offer some clarity together for us. Uh, not about the name so much. All those names, Communion, Lord's Supper, Lord's Table, Eucharist, we can call it any of those things. They're all totally legitimate. And, and each one really communicates some different aspect of what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. But really what I want us to do, I want to help us have a shared vision as a church for what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. We get to do it every two weeks, which is something I love about New Hope. God tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that it's to be observed thoughtfully, with discernment. So my aim is to bring some fresh clarity to this end. For some of us, maybe this is going to be like, yeah, I've heard this before, but I lost sight of this. For some of it's going to be maybe new, wherever you happen to be. If this affirms you in what you already believe and already know, then great. Praise God for that. But there's another reason that we're talking about the Lord's Supper today. It's because I believe that this practice is a deeply important aspect of our lives as Christians. What we do when we come to this table and take this bread and take this cup is vital, in fact, a central aspect of our lives as Christ's followers. Now, now if you're a Christian here today, I wonder if you believe that. Or if maybe you're thinking, Rob, 
Christianity is not about rituals. Christianity is not about ceremonies like this. It's about Jesus. It's about faith in him. Christianity is about the gospel, what Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's done for us. And if you believe that and you're saying that in your mind, you're right. You're absolutely right. It is all about Jesus Christ, and that is exactly why the Lord's Supper is so important. Because Jesus gave it to us. And he told us to do it. And he told us how to do it. And he told us why. This is a gospel ordinance. This isn't just a religious ritual. This is all about Jesus. So we don't make much of Jesus by minimizing the Lord's Supper. The church historically, throughout the ages, has not minimized the Lord's Supper. At times, maybe they've given it a place that it doesn't really deserve. They've, they, they've, they've centered on it too much, perhaps, at times, and misread into it. That's, that's happened. We want to avoid that. But we don't make much of Jesus by minimizing the role of the Lord's Supper. We honor him by cherishing it and by enjoying it like he calls us to, for the reasons he calls us to. And by doing it in faith, believing that Jesus, if you've given to us and you've told us that this is important, you had very, Jesus had very few moments left with his disciples on earth when he said, this is important enough that I'm going to spend the last minutes of my time with you by introducing this to you. We get to receive it as a church and do it thousands of years later. Lots of religions, and I'm sure you've noticed this, are very ritual heavy. They prescribe certain repeated outward actions, right? So maybe for some religions, it's about praying at certain times of the day while facing in a certain direction. Or or for some religions, it's about lighting certain candles while saying certain words. Or bowing before certain images in, in certain places. Or honoring certain holy days in certain prescribed ways. Christianity is not like that. It's not ritual heavy. (laughs) At least it was never meant to be that way. Because if you search the New Testament, what you find is we've only got two rituals to observe. We've got baptism, we've got the Lord's Supper. We call them ordinances. I call them that because they were given to us authoritatively by Jesus. One of them, baptism, was introduced by Jesus uh, uh, after his resurrection. And, and it, it marks the, the, the beginning first steps of following Jesus for the rest of your life. It happens once. And then the other, the Lord's Supper, that was instituted, as I said before, by Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, the night before he would be handed over to death. And it's meant to happen again and again and again as we follow Jesus throughout life. So if Christ, who... Jesus Christ, by the way, was not a fan of religious rituals. He hated empty religious rituals. But if he gives the church these two practices, and he instills them with meaning, and he says, do this until I come back, shouldn't we cherish them too? Shouldn't they be important to us? Shouldn't we, in fact, expect blessings through them? If Jesus lays onto them so, that's so much importance into them, shouldn't we expect blessings when we come to this table? You see, part of the reason we're talking about the Lord's Supper today is because it's underrated. And, and I think it's often underappreciated. 
And, and I'm hoping that for some of us, if not all of us, what, what we hear from God will foster a deeper gratitude for this simple meal. I want us to get a sense for the rich depth of meaning that's packed into this ordinance. Okay? And, and I've been praying that, that that would lead to a deeper love for Jesus, because that's the, that's the goal. A deeper love for the one who stands at the center of everything we do when we come to this table and we take this bread and we take this cup and we eat and drink. All right, so here's what I want us to do. I want us to think about what is happening when we eat the Lord's Supper. What is happening when we eat the Lord's Supper? In one foundational passage, this is in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. the Apostle Paul says this to a church. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's how he sums up the Lord's table, What's everything that's happening there. And, and, and what I want to do is unpack that a bit over the next couple of weeks. What's involved in this proclaiming? What's happening when we eat this bread and we drink the cup? I've got seven things in all that I want to share with you. They all happen to start with R, conveniently enough. And we're just going to hit three of them today. Just three. The next week we'll look at four, the remaining. First thing I want us to see happens when we eat the Lord's Supper. When we eat the Lord's Supper, we are remembering Jesus Christ's sacrifice. We are remembering Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Look at what it says in Luke 22, verses 14 and 15. It says there, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And the night when Jesus Christ introduced communion, he was actually celebrating Passover. Many of you may know this. It's, it's a cere- Passover is a ceremonial meal that reminds Jews of a pivotal event in their history. A time when while they were slaves in Egypt, God told them through Moses that he was going to take the life of the oldest son from every single family in Egypt. It was an act of judgment by God upon the Egyptians. But in order for his people, the Israelites, to be spared, God makes a provision. He said, take a lamb, kill it, and, and take its blood and smear it over the door of your home. Paint the entrance to your home with the blood of this lamb. And when the angel of death comes for the lives of these young men all throughout Egypt, he will pass over your house. He will see the blood of the lamb and pass over your home and you will be spared. Because the lamb died, death will not come to your house. This was a miraculous story of God's mercy. And God really not only spared his people from death that night, but eventually he would would rescue them from slavery in Egypt. Very soon they were all going to be free. So now, every year, whenever any Jewish family celebrates the Passover meal, through that entire ritual, what are they doing? They're looking back and they're remembering what their God did. They're remembering his power. They're remembering his mercy. But this Passover meal in Luke 22, this particular Passover, Jesus pauses. He stops. And look at what he says in verse 19 of Luke 22. It says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, 
saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus, in the middle of this meal, this meal of remembrance, he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. It's not just about remembering what happened over a thousand years ago in Egypt. It's about remembering what I am going to do. He took the Passover meal and and he repurposed it for all time. Now, whenever you eat this, he says, remember him. And notice he's pointing to his own death. He just mentioned it. He says, I want to eat with you before I suffer. A few lines down, he speaks about the fact that he's going to be betrayed. Jesus is thinking about the pain and the death that he's about to face. And he's saying, every time you take this meal, I want you to remember what I'm now looking ahead to. Betrayal, excruciating pain, crucifixion. The food at this table, there's a loaf of bread and there's some cups of juice from grapes. And the bread, which represents his body, and the cup, which represents his blood, they all tell us, they all tell us that when we come to this table, now we're just called to remember who Jesus is. We're called to remember his death, his sacrifice, the giving of his body for us, for every single one who believes in him. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus by a particular name. He calls him the Passover lamb. Paul says, Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Just like the lambs in Exodus, Jesus eventually would become a substitute. And later that same night, after reclining at the table, the Bible tells us that Jesus takes his three closest friends from that table, and he heads over to this dark, quiet garden. And Luke 22 says that he's in anguish there. And while he's there, he withdraws from them. He brings his friends with him, but then he separates himself from his friends. He goes about a stone's throw away. He knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, think about this. After offering this cup, to his friends at the table that night, this cup that represents his blood, what does Jesus do? He goes to a garden and he talks to his father about another cup. It's the cup of God's wrath. In the Old Testament, in several places in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 51, for instance, God talks about his own wrath, his own judgment, as a cup filled with wine that all the guilty, all his enemies will one day have to drink down. And and Jesus knows something here. He knows that because he's a substitute, he will have to drink down the cup of his father's wrath. He will have to drink down that cup of judgment in order to be a savior for us. It's how he's going to say, it's how he would save us. By absorbing the judgment, drinking it down, ingesting the judgment that we deserve because of our failures and because of our sins. That's what he would do at the cross. And and at this point in history, the cross is only hours away. And Jesus says, Father, your will be done. 
I will drink down the cup filled with your wrath and judgment. I will drink down the cup that my friends deserve to drink so that they won't have to drink it. And as an aside, I, that's, this is one of the reasons that we invite anyone who is trusted in Jesus as Savior and has confessed Jesus as Lord to come and take this bread and take this cup and participate in the Lord's Supper. Because it's for us. It's not for especially holy or good followers of Christ. It's for anyone and everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus and is following him. His friends by faith. We come and we take the bread, we take the cup, and we remember the death that he died so that we do not have to die. And, and also, if you've been around here for a while, you know that we also regularly encourage anyone who has not trusted in Jesus to not take communion. If, if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, we say, don't take this bread, don't take the cup. And Why do we do that? It's not because we want to be mean. It's, it's not because we want to be an exclusive club. For one, we do that because the meal doesn't have significance for you unless you believe in the sacrifice that the meal points to. Take away the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and all that that means, and this becomes a hollow religious ritual. So my deep hope is, is really that, that you, if you don't believe that Jesus died in your place, that you would believe that Jesus died in your place. If you don't believe that he drank the cup of judgment for you, my hope is that you would believe, my prayer is that you would believe that he has drank the cup of judgment for you because judgment is a reality. Jesus knew this and we need to know this. Any one of us, every one of us, in and of ourselves, are deserving of God's judgment. We've willfully sinned against him and we have failed again and again to live according to his design for us. We've rejected him as God and we've said we're going to be our own gods. We all need rescue from that judgment. And Jesus says, I have provided that rescue. I have downed the cup, the bitter cup of pain and anguish and judgment. So come. So come to me. Trust in what I've done. And for everyone who is going to come to this table today and take this bread and this cup, as, as you chew that bread, remember that his body was torn up for you. And, and as you taste the sweetness of that cup, remember that he downed the bitter cup of judgment so that you and I could taste the sweetness of that cup eternally. What we do here when we take this bread and this cup, it's not a sacrifice. Because we cannot repeat to the infinite sacrifice that Jesus performed for us. But, but it does point us back to this. To a God who because of judgment, sent, because of our sin, sent his judgment upon Jesus, who was willing and ready to receive it for us. So, when we eat the Lord's Supper, we are remembering in a very tangible kind of experiential way. It's more than just hearing facts. It's, it's, it's tangible. We touch it. We taste it. We feel it. We ingest it. It's one of the ways that God wants to communicate to us and remind us.
of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Here's another thing we do every time we come to this table. When we eat the Lord's Supper, we are recognizing that we are part of a body. We're recognizing that we're part of a body. You know, in 1 Corinthians 11, again, that chapter is so important when it comes to understanding this ordinance. And in that chapter, Paul launches into the discussion of the Lord's Supper this way. Look what he says in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He goes on in verse 20. Look at this. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Many scholars believe that the Lord's Supper, as we enjoy it here, which is a small meal of a a piece of bread and and a small cup, that that made up part of the the ceremony that the early church in Corinth, for instance, would have um, observed. But built into that was also a larger meal. So they'd have what's sometimes called a a love meal, an agape love feast, where they would eat together. They'd actually, maybe it was potluck, who knows. They'd all eat together. But something, and then, and then they partake in this table too, as part of it. What Paul's describing here is a rowdy, awful scene at these meals. You see, because division had set in, there, there was a toxic environment, right, really, in this church. Because there were broken relationships and divisions that had resulted from pride and they had resulted from selfishness and from prejudice. And and the result of all this is that the Lord's Supper had become defiled. The Lord's Supper had been ruined. In fact, Paul says, when you come together, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you're eating anymore. Stop calling it that. It's not even that anymore. Stop pretending that you're actually worshiping God when you do this. He says in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Hmm. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Do you hear the seriousness of this? Paul goes from talking about bad manners at a potluck to now he's talking about life and death because he knows that it amounts to more than just bad manners at a potluck. It amounts to division and animosity and hatred within the church that's dishonoring to God. And Paul says, this actually brings with it judgment. Anyone who drinks without discerning the body and eats, eats and drinks judgment on himself. What what does it mean? We need to pause here. What does it mean to not discern the body? Because that seems to be the problem here, right? If you take this bread and you eat this cup without discerning the body, then Paul says, that's trouble. That you're drinking judgment on yourself. What does that mean? 
Some scholars have said this. They've said the problem that Paul is talking about here, it's coming to the table without remembering that it's all about Christ and his body sacrificed. It's coming to the table and neglecting, ignoring the fact that his body was broken and bled for us. Other scholars approach this differently. They have said that the body that Paul is talking about here is a reference to the church itself. You know that often in his letters, Paul refers to the church as a body. A body made up of many members. And in the context here in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, he's already talking about the relationship between people in the church, right? So the problem that he's talking about here, some say, it's not just coming to the table forgetting about the body of Jesus Christ that was broken and bled for us on the cross. It's forgetting about the fact that we're doing this as a body, a community of people. The problem that he's talking about here is coming to the table without caring for and seeking the good of the body, the community of believers. Now, here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that Paul is not necessarily speaking about one or the other, but both. Because they both go together. You see, when we come to the Lord's table, we are, as I already said before, we're meant to remember Christ and his death in our place, but we're also meant to remember this, that to all who come, we come as one unified body. You see, this is a meal of remembrance, but it's also a family meal. It's meant to be enjoyed in community. It's an ordinance of the church that is of the family, not just for individuals. So each time we do it, we're called to recognize our identity as one united people, the people of God. Diverse, but one body. And and we're meant to be reaffirming our love for one another at this table, reaffirming our love and commitment to one another. Why is the Lord's Supper sometimes called communion? It's called communion, for one thing, because it's where we come and we commune with Jesus, right? We meet with him. But it's also called communion because we come and we commune, we meet with, and we find solidarity with one another. And we affirm our love for one another. It's a table of fellowship. We declare our communion with Christ's redeemed people. So here's the thing. How can we do that? How can we come knowing that we're divided? How can we come if we also, at the same time, are harboring divisions? Knowing that there are offenses that are unsettled, that there's animosity between us. How can we do that? How can we declare a communion together at this table and at the same time refuse to forgive or accept some member of the community? We can't. It doesn't work. We render the table meaningless when we do that. So Paul is calling them and he's calling us to forgive one another, to love one another, to reconcile. And he's saying that to refuse to do that is to make the Lord's Supper meaningless. It defiles the table. And and if we take 1 Corinthians 11.30 seriously, as I think we should, then we know that it brings heavy consequences, judgment, illness, death. Do we believe what the Bible says here? We need to. What kind of divisions do we see in the 21st century church? Ethnic divisions, generational divisions, 
right? What kinds of, how, how do people split up to worship God? Sometimes it's along generational lines. Sometimes it's along ethnic lines. Sometimes it's economic or political lines. How about in, the, in our local church? What kinds of divisions are we likely to see here? Maybe it's divisions that are born out of long-standing hurts, past offenses, maybe recent offenses as, as recently as today, or long-standing offenses. And perhaps that's combined with an unwillingness to forgive, to fully restore other people into full fellowship with ourselves. It's very easy to live that way. But it's not easy to live that way and continue to actually honor Christ at his table. It's easy to silently harbor, whether it's anger or disappointment or disgust, and and, and silently withdraw from other people. Are are you living with, with broken relationships between you and other members of this body? People that you call brothers. Maybe they're outside this, this local congregation, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and you've become kind of content to live that way. Or, or maybe you're living, are you living with low-grade tension or coldness in your relationship with another member of this community? It's not all-out war. It's just stay away from each other. There's coldness. There's tension. Maybe you're harboring judgment. Maybe it's spoken or unspoken. Maybe it's such that when their name comes up, there's just a feeling inside. There's a reaction inside you. Maybe maybe it's not wrath towards them, but things are simply not right. And you know they're not right. And if that's the case, God encourages us to not be, don't be passive. And don't be stubborn. If you are aware of tension, you have a responsibility to, do, to actually move toward that other person. To move toward the member, not once, but repeatedly moving towards them. Repeatedly, consistently moving towards them until you have done everything possible within your power to be at peace. To see not just an absence of war, but to see fellowship restored. That's what God desires for us what he commands of us. We must love one another. And that doesn't necessarily mean feel a certain way towards them, although, of course, this is easier said than done, right? Moving towards, consistently and repeatedly, moving towards someone when there's tension, when there's animosity, when it's just awkward and difficult, it's not easy. I don't mean to paint it as if it's something easy. My own heart, I'll tell you just what my heart is like. My own heart is such that when someone says something to me that, 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 that's either offensive or hurtful, or I find to be arrogant or just distasteful, my initial heart response is to want to write them off. It, like, forget you. That's what we used to say when we were kids, forget you. And, and this, is, this, is, this is my heart's immediate inclination in my own sinful nature to just want to write you off and just say there are plenty of other people that I can be in fellowship with. But I also believe that by the grace of God, over the years, thankfully, God's grace is so powerful that it's even able to take someone like me 
and make me increasingly, little by little, more and more willing to just push forward towards the other, to not write off, to not abandon, to not allow fellowship to just lay in shambles. If God's able to do this with a heart that's as resistant as mine is, I believe, you know this, he's able to do this for all of us. He's able to do this with all of us. He's able to transform our hearts so that we will, in fact, lovingly feel affection for those with whom we are now in broken relationships. But I don't think it always starts with us feeling the affection. It starts with us taking a step forward, engaging, praying and engaging, and saying maybe, maybe in some places it's just saying, look, something's not right here between us. I don't know even what to do about it. I don't know what to say about it, but something's not right here. What can I do? What can we do to fix this? Because as our relationship stands now, it's not honoring to God, and it doesn't proclaim to the world that that we are members of one another. Sociologists and educators, they've encouraged families to do one simple thing, to maintain open communication with each other. It's simply eat together. It helps families, doesn't it, to just sit around the table and eat together. As Christians, we should already know that because at the center of our life together as a church is this regular shared meal. So whenever we come to this table, we come to this table, again, like I said, we're not offering a sacrifice, but we are remembering a sacrifice, and we're doing it together as a family. So here's the thing. The table for us, New Hope, it's a biweekly call to foster and maintain and repair unity. Every two weeks. There's no excuses. We can't get away from it. God is reminding us every two weeks, repair relationship, move towards each other, maintain unity. I'm not downplaying the importance, of course, of other kinds of fellowship, of eating together in each other's homes and sharing burdens with one another and praying with one another. We need to do all that. All of that strengthens community. I'm just saying that we have this one ordinance giving to us by Christ. It's meant to strengthen and foster deeper community as a church. It's a vital, it's a gospel community, this meal is. So much so, in fact, that when Paul is talking to this church that's in shambles, he's talking to this church in in Corinth where there's just so much brokenness. People are hurting each other. They're taking advantage of each other. They're defrauding one another. It's a wreck of a church, to be honest. When Paul starts addressing where things are going to be fixed, he addresses many different areas. But he points right to the Lord's table. He points right back to the Lord's table. He says in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 10, look at this with me. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the same one bread. Here at New Hope, when we take the Lord's Supper, we take one piece of bread and we rip from it, right? We all rip from the one loaf, which I really like. We we don't all drink from the same cup. 
which I kind of I kind of wish we did, but I understand it's kind of it's kind of gross in our in our culture, isn't it? I know for some of us in particular, like no, don't even talk about no. And I, I hear that, but at the same time, I think it's worth acknowledging that that it's that kind of like that kind of like uh, 21st century kind of like Western individualist like. I got my cup, you got yours kind of attitude that I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. I'm just saying that, that the, 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 the Lord's Supper kind of pushes against that, doesn't it? It uncomfortably pushes us against it. It says, you're all going to eat from the same, you're going to drink from the same, you're going to eat from the same bread. And, and what are we doing when we're doing that? We're reminding ourselves that we're, our hope is all in the same Savior, right? It's all in the same Savior. But it's also reminding us that we are bound together. Like it or not, right? <laughs> we're bound together. That's a glorious thing. That's a beautiful thing. We are members of one another. We don't all have to drink from the same cup in order to say that. I know. But we are members of one another. And if we're not recognizing that when we come to the table, then we're missing something really important. We are a body of serious sinners, grace recipients. And we proclaim the gospel to one another this gospel that brings peace and reconciles us every time we come to this table. All right, last thing for today. Last thing that I want us to see that happens when we eat the Lord's Supper. It's this. Jesus is reassuring us of his love. It's not just about what we're doing here, right? Jesus is reassuring us of his love every time we come. Look, some of us at times... We, maybe even today, we, we feel a deep sense of guilt because of how we've lived or what we've done or how we've treated other people. And sometimes, sometimes, depending on how you were raised, participating in a religious ritual can kind of give you a sense of temporary peace. It's like, I feel awful. Let me go do this thing. As soon as I do it, I start to feel like the guilt gets quieted a little bit. The, the shame gets, gets covered up a little bit. Maybe you say some words or you do some other religious thing and you feel better for a little while, but but what happens after some time goes by? It wears off. And the guilt and the shame come back. But when we take the bread and the cup, we're not engaging in some kind of religious ritual like that that gives us temporary peace. Every time we come, we are remembering and proclaiming the everlasting permanent peace that we now have with God because Jesus took the guilt and he took the shame on himself. So when we hear those words, this is my body, which is given for you, this is my blood poured out for you, Jesus himself is reassuring us. It's Christ is speaking to us in this ordinance and he's saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He's saying the covenant that I've made with you is an everlasting, unbreakable covenant. That's why I I think I said this before. This is a meal of remembrance, right? It's a memorial meal, but it's not just that. It's not just about jogging our memory so that we can make a mental note. Oh, yes, Christ died for me. It's not just that. In this ordinance, when we actually come by faith, Jesus meets with us and he reassures us, I love you. He shows his love to us here. He invites us to taste it. So as freely and as regularly as this bread and the cup are offered, Jesus, he regularly affirms to us, he says, look look at what I've done for you. This is what I have done for you. 
I willingly allowed my body to be broken and my blood to be spilled and poured out to protect and save and to have you. What is that but an affirmation of love? I've done everything for you, Jesus says to us, every time we take this bread and drink this cup. Everything for you. What more can I do for you? He gives us a supper so that we can find comfort in that, so that our faith in that will be deepened and strengthened. Think about the role of food in your relationships, okay? Do you like eating with your friends, with your family? I love eating with friends and family. New friendships are formed over meals sometimes, aren't they? And old friendships are renewed. Old friendships are strengthened as you sit there and you eat together and and you serve one another, right? You make up more food than anyone could ever eat and you serve it. I'm thinking of the dinner I just had at your place. You make up more food than anyone could ever eat and just serve it and you all eat it together. And it's like, oh, the relationship just grows. You see why the Lord's Supper is so vital? Because Jesus himself deepens and affirms and strengthens our relationship with him right here. By faith. Not because these elements have some kind of magical thing over them. We haven't haven't put them through some kind of special process in the back where we say some words over them. What do we do? We pray for them. We bless them. Yeah, we bless them by praying. We say, Lord, thank you for this. Let's eat it. Remind us of what it really means. Use it for the purposes that you have set it forth for. But we're not expecting anything magical to happen. At the same time, we believe that Jesus, by faith, is meeting with us here. And he's reaffirming, he's deepening our friendship. Remember, I read this before in Luke 22 when Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. (laughs) I like thinking about that when we come to this table. That whether or not we're thinking, man, I've got a lot of things to do today. I've got places to go. I've got people. Jesus is saying to us, I, I, Jesus, has earnestly desired to share this meal with us. And we get the privilege of engaging it week after week. In John 17, you know this prayer? Jesus is praying for his, for his people. And he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Look, Jesus longs to be with us. Our presence with him is desired. This means that you and I, by faith in Christ, have a place at his table, at this family meal where Jesus meets us and he serves us. I believe that is something to celebrate. It's something to celebrate. Yesterday I was present at a, at a, a little girl's 10-year-old uh, birthday party. It was my, birth, my daughter's birthday party. It was just some uh, classmates from school. It was a small little gathering of classmates from school and from her Sunday school. And they, they got together and, and they had fun. And I was upstairs and I could hear downstairs they're eating like this very simple meal of like pizza and cake, I think. I think those are like necessary nutrients, right? Like pizza and cake. They had everything they needed. And, and I was listening to them eat. There was like giddiness. They're like laughing and they're talking and they're like celebrating and they're like having a good old time while they like stuff their faces with pizza and cake and soda. And I'm upstairs uh, writing about the Lord's Supper on my laptop. And I'm thinking, I think there should be something of that every time we come to this table. 
like this giddiness and joy to think, wait a second, we get to be together and Jesus is with us. And so we're with him. His spirit is present in us and he's speaking to us, reaffirming love. This should be a celebratory environment. This isn't, this isn't mourning. This isn't, rem- this isn't a memorial service in that sense. This is celebration. It should be smiling. Grateful to God that we get to enjoy this meal together with our Savior. It's a meal of remembrance, no doubt, but it's also a meal of proclamation. We proclaim we're one body. Jesus died for us. And and in this meal, Jesus proclaims to us his love. Like I said, that's something to celebrate. So, Let's pray and let's celebrate this meal together. Lord, we thank you for the beauty and the richness that's, that you have woven into, uh, baked into this, this meal, this ordinance. We thank you, Jesus, for drinking the cup of wrath, for eating the bread of sorrow, for being broken for us, for spilling your blood. Lord, remind us, move in us so that we will come to a better experiential Lord, we want to know, we want to know that we will never be more loved by you than we are now, accepted by you than we are right now in Christ Jesus. Lord, cause us to rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.